introduce myself. Um, my name is Stuart Baer. I'm a candidate of Pittsburgh Presbytery uh, seeking ordination, hopefully sometime in the, in the future. Um, uh, the only uh, uh, detail I, I feel like sharing right now is that I'm kind of a newlywed. Within the last year, uh, I've been uh, married to my wife, Jill, and we're very happy uh, together. Um, now, currently, she's actually not in this country. She's a foreigner, and we have gone through the process of applying for the spousal visa to bring her into the country. And if anyone here knows anything about that, that is a really lengthy process, one that requires a lot of patience and, and diligence and a lot of uh, uh, being committed to communicating with each other on a daily basis, even though we're far away. So that's a challenge in our marriage right now, bringing her into the uh, country. But we are thankful that God has brought us together. We're thankful that God is keeping us uh, close even while we're apart. And we do pray and look forward to the day when I can be able to bring my wife into the country. So... And just uh, wanted to share a little bit of that with you guys as I'm here uh, this morning. Um, I can only recall maybe one other time I was actually in this church, and it may have been the time when I was actually received as a candidate. And so I've been here for presbytery meetings and so forth, uh, but I've never been in a pulpit for you. And so I'm pleased to be here. I'm glad that um, uh, you were able to invite me here this morning. So our text for today will be from Mark chapter 4. We will look at verses 26 through 32. I will read through verse 34, though, because that's part of the passage. Um, but the main bulk of what we will focus on will only be from 26 to 32. Um, we will look at two parables in this passage, two very short parables. One is the parable of the gro uh, growing seed, uh, and the other is the parable of the mustard seed. These should be very familiar parables to uh, all of us here. Um, but, uh, of course, anytime we read the scriptures again, we want to uh, once again be... Uh, uh, recognize that this is God's word. Um, God's spirit speaks through his word. And so even if we think that we know these stories and we're familiar with them, we always want to uh, pay attention to things the spirit may be teaching us in these familiar texts, even though we know them very well. Um, just a little background on uh, what is a parable? We hear about these words thrown around, but perhaps we're not sure what even a parable is. Well, a parable is really just a story. Uh, it comes from the Greek word parabole, and it basically means throwing aside, casting aside, where you compare one thing with another thing. And what ordinarily would happen with these parables is Jesus would take ordinary things in the lives of the people, things that were familiar to them, things that they uh, could recognize in their life, in their culture, and he would find some way to compare the, that everyday experience to some truth about his kingdom, about the work that he would do at Calvary, uh, some way to parallel in their minds, they could see 
what Jesus was talking about uh, uh, in, in language they could understand. Um, now, um, one other thing about these parables, and uh, if we read earlier in chapter 4, these parables are actually a judgment on the people of Israel. They were a judgment on them because they, they, here's the Messiah before them. They're not receiving him. They're not believing in him. And so these parables were a judgment on them. When Jesus was alone with his disciples, he explained everything uh, clearly and, and distinctly. But when he was with the crowds, he spoke in these parables so that they were never truly uh, understanding what Jesus was uh, talking about. These were a judgment on them. But for those who were receiving Christ, who were understanding him, these parables really uh, are able to express a lot to us about God's kingdom and what it really means to us. And so, um, we, again, we will look at these parables today. Now, another thing about parables is um, there is a distinction between a parable and an allegory. They're, they operate a lot in the same way, and they're trying to convey some kind of big picture. But parables and allegories do not actually work the same in that when we deal with allegories, sometimes we're dealing with uh, things that are somewhat outlandish, things that are not true to nature. For example, if we read in Judges chapter 9, the parable uh, of talking trees this is in the passage dealing with the uh, uh, rebellion of, um, of Abimelech. And we see trees that are talking. Trees, uh, and we know that by nature trees cannot talk. Those would be elements of an allegory. Uh, but we don't see those kinds of things in parables. In parables, things are true to life. True to life. Things that can actually happen in reality. But every now and then, we're thrown a little bit of a, a twist, and that we'll get a hybrid story, such as in uh, Luke chapter 16, with the story of Lazarus, the rich man and Lazarus. That would be what we would consider a hybrid, in that there are allegorical elements in it, but yet there's a reality to it as well. So that would be more of a hybrid kind of uh, thing. But in the two that we'll look at today, we don't see any of those things. We see things that are true to life, true to nature. And again, they will be conveying some truth about God's kingdom. So as we approach God's word this morning, let us take a moment and pray over his word. O Holy Father, let the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, for you are our rock and our redeemer. Amen. <clears throat> Hear now the word of the Lord from Mark chapter 4, beginning in verse 26. This is God's holy word. And he said, The kingdom of God is as if a man should scatter seed on the ground. He sleeps and rises night and day, and his seed sprouts and grows. He knows not how. The earth produces by itself, first the blade, then the ear, then the full grain in the ear. 
But when the grape is, grain is ripe, at once he puts in the sickle because the harvest has come. And he said, With what can we compare the kingdom of God? Or what parable shall we use for it? It is like a grain of mustard seed, which, when sown on the ground, is the smallest of all the seeds on earth. Yet when it is sown, it grows up and becomes larger than all the garden plants and puts out large branches, so that the birds of the air can make nests in its shade. With many such parables he spoke the word to them, as they were able to hear it. He did not speak to them without a parable, but privately to his own disciples he explained everything. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So allow us now to just walk through this text uh, for a moment. Uh, first, we will start with the parable of the growing seed. Um, the parable of the growing seed, uh, beginning in verse 26. And he said, and Jesus said, The kingdom of God is as if a man should scatter seed on the ground. So the first thing that we should notice here is that God delegates the work of the kingdom to his servants. God delegates the work of the kingdom to his servants. You know, God does not need us for anything. He is completely self-sufficient in and of himself. He did not need to create anything. He did not need to uh, make anything. Uh, And he does not even need us to be his witnesses in the world. That is not something that God requires. God could reach out to anyone at any time on his own terms with or without any aid from anyone or anything. Yet God has not chosen to go in that direction. More often than not, God has delegated certain men to be his spokesmen in the world. In the Old Testament times, that job usually fell uh, upon the prophets. There were some prophets who had rather lengthy preaching ministries and writing ministries, such as Jeremiah and Isaiah and Ezekiel, where we have a large collection of their writings in Holy Scripture. Then there are other prophets whom we only saw for a brief moment in the books of Kings and Chronicles, and then they're never heard from again. But whether they were uh, prophets who had a lengthy ministry or those who we only saw once or twice, these men were still chosen by God to be his official spokesmen uh, in the world and among his people. When we transition into the New Testament, we see that God has also raised up certain men who would be his official ambassadors. This job fell upon the apostles. The apostles were called to be ambassadors for Jesus Christ and for his uh, kingdom. But even that group would pass the baton on to another group. A group that perhaps wasn't as um, uh, uh, 
certainly did not speak God's word directly, but who have been called to care for his word and to minister the word that the prophets and the apostles handed down to us. And that job goes to the ministers, to the teaching elders, <clears throat> who are uh, the special spokesmen of the kingdom of God. Now, it's true that on some level, we all in God's church, in God's kingdom, have a responsibility to teach God's word to people. We all have that responsibility to uh, uh, bear his word, to uh, give a hope, a reason for the hope that lies within us. That job falls on all of us. It doesn't matter whether you are a minister or not. If you are a Christian and you call yourself a follower of Christ, it is your duty to bear witness to Christ. But the official duty is to the ministers, to those who have been called by God to stand in the pulpits and to bear his word to his people and to the world. And so we see in verse 26 that uh, again, the kingdom of God is as a man scatters seed on the ground. Well, this is the work that the ministers do. They spread God's seed. They spread the seed of his word. And uh, it's the primary duty of the minister. I know a minister of the gospel has a lot of work that uh, he does besides that. He has to be a good administrator, a good listener, a good teacher. But by and large, his primary duty is to be a bearer, a preacher of the word, sowing the seeds of the kingdom. Now, any man who has spent five minutes as a preacher or as an exhorter knows one thing about this. This is a humbling task, a task that should not be taken lightly because everyone who's ever um, truly, sincerely done this kind of work knows that what God is requiring of the ministers is something they have no ability in and of themselves to actually perform. The word can be spoken, right? But there's no guarantee that the people that are hearing that word are going to respond in faith. Um, and, and it doesn't matter how eloquent the preacher is. doesn't matter how um, accurate and, 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 and perfect the doctrine and the, and the theology is. The, the minister himself does not have any ability to move somebody in faith. That work solely belongs to the Holy Spirit. He is the one who converts. He is the one who draws men in and he may use the minister. He may even use you as the means that would bring somebody into the kingdom and bring them into faith. But it's never because of the preacher. And it's never because of you. It's because of the Holy Spirit. He is the one doing the work. And we are the ones who are simply those whom God has delegated to be the bearer of that uh, truth. Matthew Henry says that the word of grace is the work of grace. The word of grace is the work of grace. There's nothing anyone, man, anything the man can do to, to cause someone to believe in the gospel, to accept Jesus Christ. It is the work of grace. And grace is a gift that God gives to his people. 
So as we move on in this parable, we see in verses 27 and 28 uh, that the man, while he's sowing the seed, is pretty much passive in what will happen next. Verse 27, he sleeps and rises night and day, and the seed sprouts and grows. He knows not how. The earth produces by itself, first the blade, then the ear, then the full grain in the ear. And so, again, when the man plants this seed, that's as much as he can really do at this point. He has to be patient. He has to wait for the uh, ground and the seed and the soil to cultivate that which he has planted. There's nothing more he can do at this point but sit back and wait and watch as nature takes its course. And this is true again of those who are bearing God's word. We can sow the seeds, we can scatter the seeds of the kingdom, but we have to wait for the spirit to do the work in somebody's heart. We cannot do that for them. But we also see something in verse 28 that's interesting, that we see a, a progression in the growth of this seed. Uh, the earth produces by itself, first the blade, then the ear, then the full grain in the ear. So it really started out very small, very minimal, and then grows into something much more elaborate. And this also is very similar to the way salvation works in our hearts and in our lives as well. Uh, J.C. Ryle calls it the day of small beginnings, uh, the day of uh, uh, sanctification, that is. Sanctification is the day of small beginnings. Our salvation did not begin with us being fully versed in everything according to God's word and, and God's uh, purpose. And there may be a reason for that, is that God in his wisdom, in his uh, 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 understanding of us does not show us everything we do need to know about our wicked hearts all at one time. Uh, it, it may be true that um, he does it incrementally over time so that as a new believer, a new Christian, we're not uh, uh, startled by the wickedness that we see in our own hearts. Um, you know, think back to when you first became a believer. Now, for some people here, this may be difficult because perhaps you were saved at a very young age, at age before you even remember that you were saved. We know that God's spirit can move however he wishes and that he can convert someone at any age in any, at any time. Um, many times in the church, we will pray for those who, are, uh, who are, uh, become pregnant and we'll pray for the, the baby in the womb that even from that point, God would show mercy to that child and convert him in the womb. We believe that God's spirit can do that. Uh, we believe that it, it's, uh, he's capable of that. And so even from that point, we're already praying for the sanctification of this child. Uh, but, so, but there may be some of you here who do actually remember the moment you got saved. The moment that God showed mercy to you. And if you think back on that time, uh, perhaps, again, God didn't show you all of your wickedness all at once. 
You may have thought uh, um, that if I'm avoiding uh, drinking too much or using foul language or, you know, uh, staying away from impure thoughts and impure actions, then maybe uh, I'm doing a pretty good th- uh, job with my walk of faith. But as you continue in your walk of faith, you start to see more and more of the ugliness in your soul and in your heart. And you're more and more convicted of your sin. And you may be tempted to think, am I more sinful now than I was back to the beginning? And that's simply not the case, beloved. The, the, the case is that that wickedness was there before. That un, uh, unholiness was still there before. Uh, remember, in this life, there's always a mixture of... Uh, of, um, of uh, sanctification and the indwelling sin that still uh, resides in us. That war continues as long as we are in this life and in this world. So there is always going to be some corruption in us uh, as we await uh, the, the, the full redemption. Uh, but it's not as if you were, you've grown into becoming more wicked. That's not the case. It's that God is starting to show you more of your need for him. And um, if he had shown you all this stuff in the beginning, perhaps it would have thrown you off at, at the start. But as you walk with Christ, as you gain confidence in the things that you know about him, you're also shown more of how much you need him too. And that is very true. But Ryle also says that even a weak child in the faith, in a family, is still in the family. Regardless of where you are in your faith, whether you're, uh, uh, you feel like you're really strong in your faith, or you feel like you're weak and you need a lot of assistance, even a weak child is still in the family. And so that's something to be... <clears throat> grateful for um, come to the end of this first parable we see in verse 29 but when the grain is ripe at once he puts in the sickle because the harvest has come this really can relate to uh, none other than the uh, general harvest that will take place at the end of time when Jesus uh, returns. <clears throat> um, so as uh, the sower, he, he's sown the seed, he's uh, done what he needs to do to plant it, as it starts to grow, and it comes ripe, and once it becomes ripe, then he goes to the harvest. And Again, this is a parallel to what God is doing in his church right now, and in the world even. God is bringing in the, the uh, he's sowing the seeds now with his ministers and with his preachers and with those of you who are called to uh, bear witness to Christ and to the kingdom. And that day will come to a, a conclusion at some point. We're not sure when. We don't know exactly how long it is until that day will come. But we know for sure from Christ's own words that that day will come. Jesus guaranteed that if I go to prepare a place for you, and if I go, I will come again and bring you to myself. That's Jesus' own promise to us. There's another way we can look at this passage as well. That 
Yes, there's something to look forward to in a general harvest. It's the second coming. But there may also be what we could call a personal harvest as well. Whether or not we are the generation alive when Christ comes back, whether or not that's the case, if that's not true, if the Lord tarries and it's another 2,000 years before he comes back, each of us will experience the death of the body. That's the reality. That's the reality of the fallen world that hardly anyone, there's only two exceptions ever in history of people who did not face physical death. That was Enoch and Elijah. And the reasons that they were spared death is beyond our understanding. Why God chose to let them be spared of that, that that's, that's, that's between God and those particular saints. But generally, the rest of us will experience the death of the, the body. When we think about death, we think about dying, and uh, it has a cold uh, feel to us, a, 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 a sorrow as well. Um, but we want to understand that, first of all, death is not natural. It is a, a product of the fallen world that we live in. We were not created to, to die. The reason we die is because of sin and because of the fall of, of the world. But um, it was not originally supposed to be that way. But even when we deal with the harshness of death, we know that for Christians, for those who are already following Christ, who have the Spirit in us, death does not have to be feared, beloved. It does not have to be something that we fear, something that we dread. Although the uh, process of getting to death may be what we're more afraid of than actually dying itself. When, when I think about uh, the, the suffering and, and the, the, the physical breakdown of death, that part I'm not all that happy to look forward to. Uh, that part I, I would rather, you know, I've heard of people who pass real calmly in their sleep. That's the one that I would look forward to. Then, but that's not always the case with everyone. Some of us will have quite an agonizing approach to our own death. And so that part is something we don't exactly look forward to. But even in that, there's a sense of comfort that at the other side of that lays our Savior, where we will be with him after all that suffering is gone. And understand one other thing about Christian death. No Christian ever dies by accident. No Christian ever dies by accident. That God has a purpose in the death of his saints. And... Um, you know, God has a purpose for each of us as his children. He has a reason that we're here. He has a purpose for uh, us in the church and in the communities that are around us. And when that job is complete, that's when God brings us home. And so no Christian has ever died again by accident. They've never really died prematurely. That God had work for that saint to do. And when that work was completed, he took them home. And that's what he's going to do with each of us when that time comes. Now moving on into our second parable, uh, the parable of the mustard seed. Uh, we hear, uh, well, we see uh, at the beginning of this parable uh, an underestimating of 
the mustard seed. It starts out really small, really insignificant. And so this is why Jesus talks about uh, what can we compare the kingdom of God with? Uh, what parable shall we use? And so he thinks of the mustard seed. Verse 31. It is like a grain of mustard seed, which when sown on the ground is the smallest of all the seeds on earth. And so the mustard seed starts out really small, really insignificant. But in verse 32, we read this. Yet when it is sown, it grows up and becomes larger than all the garden plants. Do we not see a parallel between this mustard seed in the kingdom of God and the kingdom of Christ? Now, there's a sense in which the kingdom of God has been expressed long before the, the actual coming of Christ. We see throughout the Old Testament time that God's kingdom was in some way visible on the earth with the nation of Israel and the king of Israel representing God in, in the world and in, in, among his people. Um, but perhaps what Jesus is talking about here is about his phase of the kingdom, his phase of uh, the kingdom of God on earth, which we have to admit, beloved, started out very insignificant and very small. Just think about Christ's own entrance into the world. We just finished celebrating Christmas, where we once again observe the uh, coming of Christ into the world, and we remember the conditions in which he entered the world, that he entered the world without a whole lot of fanfare. Uh, there were some shepherds who recognized his birth. Uh, there, uh, a few years later, the Magi would come and, and honor him. But nobody was rolling out the red carpet for his birth. In fact, when Joseph had to register in Bethlehem for uh, the census, there was nowhere for uh, he and Mary to go uh, in the in the whole city, and so Jesus had to be born in a in a, a, stra- a, a stable, um, not exactly where you would envision the son of the living God to be born in a, a stable of all places. And his family wasn't all that popular, you know. Um, Yes, uh, Joseph was of the line of David. He was. He didn't have royal blood in him. But by this point in Israel, it had been hundreds of years since the Davidic kingdom had any power in the world. I I suppose that um, Herod was sort of like a king of Israel in a sense. Uh, He did have part uh, Hebrew blood as well as part Edomite blood. Um, but even Herod the Great was subject to the Roman Empire. And so there is no kingdom of Israel at the time. Joseph, who could be considered the rightful king of Israel at the time, nobody even recognized that in him. And then we think about Christ's education. He didn't study under any of the great rabbis of his time. He didn't travel to Greece and study under the Greek uh, philosophers. He was a self-educated rabbi from Nazareth, a town that was not all that uh, popular in the region at the time. And then his disciples. 
You couldn't have found 12 men who were at the beginning completely unqualified to be uh, uh, bearers of God's word and, and teachers and preachers and expositors. This was a very interesting group. You can imagine 12 men more different than each other than these the, the disciples. But none of these men had any kind of training to be uh, preachers and, and uh, teachers. And yet Christ took them and molded them into what uh, they would, would be. But these are humble beginnings, humble beginnings. And Matthew Henry says, when a Christian church was sown in the earth for God, it was all contained in one room, and the number of the names was but 120. And so Christ's uh, kingdom, his church in the world, began with 120 people. And that's it. No, no more than that. But that would not stop there. Again, verse 32. And yet when it is sown, it grows up and it comes larger than all the garden plants and puts out large branches so that the birds of the air can make nests in its shade. And is this not exactly what we saw from Christ's kingdom? Uh, again, we move away from the room of 120 uh, individuals. And on the day of Pentecost, 3,000 people were joined to the church. 3,000 people in one day. And, you know, slowly, by the end of the first century, there are, are, were uh, evidences of the gospel in just about every part of the Roman world by the end of the first century. And so within less than 100 years, the gospel had made some great strides in the world and to the point where uh, it was hard to go anywhere in the Roman world and not find Christians somewhere in some way. Unfortunately, though, this uh, parable is often... Uh, misinterpreted. It's a victim of some misinterpretations. And uh, sometimes when we um, see uh, uh, some of the elements in this uh, parable, uh, particularly uh, there's a fellow who uh, uh, began the Calvary Chapel movement named uh, Chuck Smith. And when he interprets this passage, he uh, notices the, the birds and the uh, and the, and the branches, and he, he interprets this as saying there's something unnatural in, uh, in, in this plant. And so when Smith uh, recognizes this passage, he talks about the pure beginnings of the church, but then the infiltration of corruption within the church as well, dealing with the branches and, and, and the birds. And his argument was that mustard plants don't grow to be very big. And so this is something that's happening unnaturally. Uh, now, the issue with that, though, is that uh, mustard bushes actually can grow to be quite large. They can grow to be about 20 to 30 feet tall with a, a, a span of about 20 uh, feet uh, 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 with the branches. And so um, that would be suitable to have a bird, uh, birds, uh, a nest in, in them. And then uh, there's another uh, commentator who talks about this. 
And he notices the, the birds in this passage. And when he thinks about the birds, again, he's thinking about uh, some kind of uh, demonic infiltration in the church. And his reasoning for that comes from Genesis chapter 15. In Genesis chapter 15, where uh, Abram is uh, fighting away the, the vultures as he has uh, uh, prepared the, the, um, the animals uh, for the uh, covenant ritual. And um, this commentator sees that and notices that this is um, the satanic uh, in, interference in Abram. And so he applies that uh, that uh, detail to this uh, parable and, and indicating that uh, birds in these stories has some kind of satanic uh, meaning to it. But that's not always the case in scripture. There are times when uh, birds do not necessarily uh, have that definition. If we read in Daniel chapter 4, we see a parable that Daniel uh, t- says concerning the king of Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar. And it talks about Babylon in terms of being a large tree, that the birds come and make their nests in it. And so what Daniel was talking about there was the prosperity that Babylon experienced and the prosperity that they uh, in, uh, enjoyed uh, and that God had blessed the, the uh, Babylonian kingdom with this blessing. And uh, obviously Nebuchadnezzar was not uh, recognizing that blessing. But the point is that... Um, Birds do not necessarily have a satanic meaning to, to it. And so one rule of thumb when we interpret these parables is the details in the parables oftentimes are really just there as window dressing. Um, there's always one main point in a parable and a lot of times the images we're seeing, uh, the individual points are really just there to describe the scene. And what was interpreted in one parable may not be how it should be interpreted in another. And so each parable is basically a unit in and of itself. And whatever is in that parable is how we would want to interpret that uh, parable. So obviously what we're seeing here in in Mark 4 is not some kind of corruption that's happening in the church, but how there will be a worldwide uh, uh, implications for what Christ established with uh, this new kingdom. You know, uh, God promised to Abram that he would be a blessing to all the families of the earth. All the families of the world would be, be blessed through him. And ultimately that blessing came through the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, as uh, um, again the kingdom of God would spread out from Jerusalem. And again by the end of the first century we're seeing that Christianity is being uh, followed in just about every part of the Roman uh, world. Um, and so, uh, and even down into our day, we notice it in various parts of the world. Uh, uh, 
the God of Abraham is being worshipped because of Jesus Christ and because of the spread of the gospel. Now, we come to a point in our society, and I guess the church has always done this, is we want to speculate as to how much more time we have before uh, Christ uh, comes back. How much time before the, before the Great Commission is, is completed. Well, and when we look at different signs and different ways of figuring that out, we think of um, the different... Uh, uh, difficulties that come up, wars and, and famines and, 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 and weather patterns. Um, but Jesus says in Matthew 24 that those are actually not even signs pointing uh, to that uh, specifically. Um, that those are not the signs of his coming. The signs of his coming actually is the gospel going out to all the nations, to all the world. And according to the Joshua Project, uh, there are about 17,000 different ethnic groups uh, around the world. 17,000 ethnic groups. And according to this study, there are about 7,000 of these groups that are still unreached. That's 42% of the world. And the way they... uh, define an unreached people group would be anywhere that there's less than uh, about 2% to 5% uh, percentage of professing Christians. Which means in these areas there's not a whole lot of uh, witness of the gospel. There's hardly even uh, uh, churches uh, available. And so with that number there it may indicate that we still have a little bit of time to go before the Lord is going to come back. Because again, it's not the wars and the rumors of wars that we're looking at. Those things have always existed. Uh, It's not the uh, unpredictable unpredictable weather patterns because they've always been there with us too. It's the, the spread of the gospel and the Great Commission going to all the nations of the world. So until that is completed, beloved, we still have probably a ways to go before the Lord comes back. So rather than looking to those signs as indications of things, we ought to stick with what Jesus says. And notice that when we see new groups and new missionary groups going out in different parts of the world, that's the sign, beloved. That's what we should be encouraged by when we see new parts of the world receiving the gospel. And so a couple conclusions about this. First, with the growing parable, uh, seed parable. So men and women come to faith, and it's usually by the preaching of the word. Sometimes there's some other way of uh, bringing that about. But most of the time, it's by the ordinary preaching of the word or the witnessing of the word uh, in someone's life. But remember that it's never because of us It's never because of you or anyone that someone comes to faith. It's only by the work of the Holy Spirit. And then with the mustard seed, uh, we have, again, the humble beginnings of Christ's kingdom. It started out very insignificant, 120 people in the the room. Uh, That was the church at the time. That was God's kingdom at that moment. 
But again, we see the progressive growth of that kingdom to the point where we are now. And uh, you and I are far removed from Jerusalem. Yet here we are praising the God of Abraham through Jesus Christ because of that great commission. And so... Again, we see the, the, where it started, very small, and how it's grown to be to the point where it is now. And as I said before, we are not finished, beloved. There are many places that still need the gospel, that still need the, the kingdom's uh, presence. And by God's spirit, we will press on until that work is completed. And so that is something to look forward to, something to be excited about. Uh, you know, we're coming into a new year, and we think about how can, uh, if you had a really nice year in 2022, maybe you're thinking, how can 2023 top the, the great things that I saw in 2022? Well, and there's one thing that we can look forward to in this year. It's the continued uh, uh, witnessing of the gospel, the continued uh, spreading of the seeds of the kingdom wherever we are and whomever we're uh, around. And knowing that uh, our work is not in vain, God blesses the work that we do on his behalf. Not that he needs us, not that he is dependent on us, but he, he delights in having his people do his work of evangelism. He delights in that. He likes delegating his authority to his people here on earth. That, that's something to be really grateful for, that he includes us in that, something he doesn't have to. That's really a great privilege that we have in, in Christ. So, beloved, I hope as you uh, continue uh, through this new year that you'll be uh, reminded again of the things that brought you to this point. Uh, You know, some blessings, some uh, not so great things in 2022. But here we are, a new year, a a new uh, way of, of of. of walking in our, in our faith and bringing about the, the things that God has for this world and for his, his people. And I just uh, pray that uh, you will not uh, grow weary of the task that is before us, that you will look to it as something to uh, be joyful about. And... Uh, and that's really uh, something we can be grateful for in this new year. So let's uh, close in prayer and then we'll finish. Again, our Father, we are thankful for these two parables that you have put before us this morning. Uh, We are humbled that you would choose us as your uh, servants to bear your word that you would even use us who are imperfect and who don't always have the right uh, motivations in heart, but you still use us, Father. You still call us to be your uh, representatives here in this world and uh, in, in, in the church. And we just ask you, Father, that you would uh, help us to uh, recognize the, the work that is before us, uh, that you would give us the joy to do the work that you have uh, for us. Um, 
that we would be humbled in the work that you have for us. Again, recognizing that you don't need us in any of this, but it is your delight to uh, have us be a part of the Great Commission, even in some small way in our little corner of the world. We pray all this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Savior. Amen.